We're going to continue our study of the resurrection. What we've been looking at is not just the fact of the resurrection, but uh, what is it? How important is it to the gospel? How uh, critical is it to actually the way that we walk and live uh, today? And we have followed the resurrection of Christ, and we have followed it through uh, the, uh, you know, his entry. We have followed it through the, uh, the, the guards. Be- we followed it through his resurrection, the guards being bribed, and then his appearance to these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Now, the Lord told his disciples, he said, go on to Galilee. Go on to Galilee, and so what did they do? They stayed. Okay. Two of them took off in the wrong direction, headed west. They should have been headed north. And these are Cleopas and Simon. It's another Simon, not Simon, uh, Simon Peter, but it's another Simon. And they take off, and the Lord appears to them on the road. And he explains to them what all went on. Well, they run back, and they tell their friends, the disciples, they were there. They knew what the story was. They knew the women had seen the risen Christ. The disciples didn't believe it. And so they uh, turn around and go back and say, He's risen. He really is risen. It's not just a story. We saw him. And so then we find that uh, uh, some didn't believe. And so he appeared to them behind locked doors. Now that's neat because we're going to get a body like his. Doors are not going to be an issue for us. You know, if you're not feeling real good, you hate to open a door and you hate to close a door. So these things are just going to be opening. So all these things are going to be unlocked. We can just pass through them if we want to. And uh, I'm kind of looking forward to that. But then he tells the disciples, he said, you know, here I am. And he sat down and ate a meal with them. Also nice to know about our new bodies. And we know none of you in here like food. Some, some people eat to live. Most of us live to eat. And so here they are. And he sits down and he eats food. They thought he was a ghost. And he said, you got any food? So they gave him some fish. Now, if he was a ghost, where would he put the fish? He says, it's a real body. I'm back on a real body. But there was one person not there. By the name of Thomas. Long time ago, I used to do uh, different um, uh, characters of the apostles, disciples, Abraham, and I would dress up in these things and do them at camps and things like that. And it kind of first started with James, James the Less. I could identify with him a little bit because he's supposed to be young, small. I was doing this when I was young. I'm still small, but I'm not young anymore. And so, anyway, and it kind of spread out. I did Judas once. Oh, that was a hoot. I did uh, Thomas once. He was one of the disciples. And so, it was kind of interesting to do them. Actually, did Abraham one time, and that was that was a fun thing. I did that for a for a high school here in uh, Christian High School. <clears throat> they asked me to do Abraham and. And I thought, I'm not sure I want to do Abraham because all we've got is Hagar and <laughs> Abraham's infidelity. 
we have circumcision in the next chapter, Sodom and Gomorrah in the next chapter. <laughs> and so, but anyway, it all went very well. <laughs> and got through and did, did Abraham. But Thomas was a fun one. Because doing Thomas, you get to kind of go through the life of Christ from his perspective as a doubter. And you can almost see him, feed the 5,000, Philip. Well, we don't have enough food. Well, what do you have? He says, he starts breaking bread and the food starts multiplying. And it, it's so neat. And you can almost see Thomas going, I'm going to get in the back of the line because he's going to run out before he gets to me. And probably when he shows up with this basket, the Lord says, come back when you finish that one. I'll give you another one. So anything that, that Thomas could do to, to, for the Lord to overcome his doubts, I believe that's what he did. I believe that's what the assignments were for and what he did with his various disciples over the course of that three and a half years. Now we see Thomas again. And we saw behind locked doors last week and he wasn't there. And now we're going to look at seeing and believing because they went and told Thomas and he said, I'm not going to believe lest my put my hands in his side, my fingers in the nail. I'm just not going to believe. Sounds like some of us, doesn't it? Well, here he is, John 20, verse 24, where it picks up the narrative. And it says, but Thomas, one of the twelve. Now remember, Judas is gone now. But they still came to know themselves as the twelve. He says, called Didymus. And that's a word that means the twin. Now, when I get to talk to Thomas one of these days in eternity, I'm going to tell me about your brother. Because hey, he had a twin brother. He's, we don't know a lot about Thomas, but we know he had a, had a twin brother. We don't see his brother following along as a disciple. But he had a, he had a twin, twin brother. Now, Thomas is grouped. Whenever you study the disciples, and it's a fun study, because you get little glimpses of their personality types and their quirks you get little touches of them just enough to get an idea of what their main mindset is because that's what the holy spirit chose to reveal what about simon the zealot what else do we know about him name of his daddy that's about it james the less what do we know about him son of alphaeus not very much about James the Less, except it's interesting that Matthew is also called the son of Alphaeus. Were these two brothers? Certainly what it looks like, because the scripture didn't need to record son of Alphaeus on either one of them, and we would still have all the narrative we need, but he says, both of them son of Alphaeus. See, Matthew is a Roman name, Levi was his Hebrew name. But he was a tax collector, so the indication is he was disowned by his family when he became a tax collector. So he went by the name of, of Matthew. And uh, being a tax collector, he had to be very good with his uh, accounting, keeping track of things, or the Romans would have killed him. So he had to be very good, and we see that in 28 chapters of the gospel according to Matthew where he has made some notes 
along the way. Did he write it along the way? I don't know. But he, he had plenty of information, more information than any of the other gospel writer, writers, in fact. And that's because he was an eyewitness to what was going on. But when you see the disciples, you find, you find them in groups, three groups of four each. You find Peter, Andrew, James, and John, two sets of brothers. Okay. You also find in the second group, you find Philip and Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel, and Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. So Thomas is in the second group of disciples. He wasn't one of the ones at, on the Mount of Transfiguration. He wasn't there. But what it shows is it was like three different groups of four each, and he's in the second group. The last one has got Judas, James, the less. Um, I forget the other two, but they've, they, they were there. Matthew 10.3 shows this grouping. You always find them grouped this way, which is interesting. Thomas had previously said he was willing to die with Jesus. In John 11, which really was the same year as the cross, in John 11, verse 8, it says, uh, if you want to turn there quickly, you can go ahead and turn there and we'll... we'll uh, uh, John 20, verse 8, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going to go there again? And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said, and after he had said this, he says, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I go that I might awaken him out of his sleep. See, this is Bethany, five miles outside of Jerusalem that he's talking about. The disciples then said to him, Well, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. No big deal. Why are we going to go there, put ourselves, they always say, put you in danger, but they meant themselves. Okay? Now, Jesus had spoken of his death. But they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. He got the report and he waited three days. Interesting, isn't it? It's kind of like he didn't care. That's what he's going to be accused of. He says, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. So that you might believe. Let us now go to him. And therefore Thomas, who's called Didymus, the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go so that we might die with him. Now this is a bold statement Thomas made, again, the year of the cross, as Jesus is going to raise Lazarus into a dangerous place. Thomas says, okay, let's go die with him. Okay. One of those bold statements people make oftentimes without thinking, but he, he said he was willing to die with Jesus. And he, he is the one that went, he is one who went on to Galilee from John 21. It says, Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. So not all the twelve went, only eleven left. Not all of them went. The point is, 
is that it's easy to miss out on great things of life when we lack faith. If, we're, if we lack faith concerning any given area of the Word of God, it's easy to miss out on the good things. We look at, uh, uh, we look at what's going on in the world today. And you know there's a whole lot of bad things going on in the world. But by being observant as to what's going on, there's actually a new, new song out. It's not falling apart. It's falling into place. That's what's happening with the world right now. Look at China, Russia, India. Look at all the kings of the east. Look at the king of the north, the king of the south. Everything is coming together. Is it a mess? Yes. When we get to 2 Peter 3 again next week, we're going to see that there is more than one judgment of fire coming upon this planet. More than one. Now, <clears throat> we find in verse 25, he says, So the other disciples were saying to him, this is Thomas, they're talking to, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint, the tupas, of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails. I want to see the nail hole and put my finger in there, be sure it's real. And put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, the I will not believe is a double negative, which is terrible in English. We're taught not to do that from early gr grammatical school, if they still teach grammar anymore. We're taught not to do that, but it's ume in the Greek. It's a double negative and says, absolutely not. I'm just not going to believe. So Thomas was a doubter. This in parts where he gets his name, Thomas the doubter. But I think he was a doubter all along. He wanted tangible proof that it was Jesus. So he's not going to accept the word of even his closest friends that he's been wandered around on the trail with for the last few years. He says, I'm just not going to buy it. So faith is not impossible for even the most hard-headed skeptic. And I think we need to keep that in mind. Lee Strobel, hard-headed skeptic, decided that he would investigate. And what did he find? Yeah, Jesus is the Messiah. Josh McDowell wrote so many books on apologetics, excellent stuff that he has written uh, now, I guess, 50 years ago that he came out with evidence that demands a verdict. And was he a skeptic? Yeah, he set out to disprove it. Rush Limbaugh's brother David, same thing. And every time they're hard-headed skeptics but give them a Bible and tell them to disprove it. Because if they're honest, they can't. And they'll know that the evidence would stand up in any legitimate course, uh, court in the history of the world. So it's not impossible for even the most hard-headed individual. Now, <clears throat> verse 26, after eight days, his disciples were again inside. Now see, when Jesus first appeared to them, it was Sunday, the day of the resurrection. He appeared. He got the two guys, Cleopas and Simon, headed in the wrong direction. They went back, told them what happened. They're all gathered together inside a locked building because they're afraid of the Romans. And Jesus just shows up. That's where it happened. 
And then they tell Thomas. Thomas didn't believe it. So eight days later, they were again inside. Sounds like inside a locked building. And Thomas was with them. And Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. That's what he'd said a week earlier. Same thing. That's what he had said multiple times over the course of their their uh, ministry together. Now, eight is the number of new beginnings. And Thomas was about to get one. Okay? Pretty cool. The first visitation happened on Sunday evening of the day of the resurrection, Monday of the following week. So he opens the meeting with a familiar greeting, Peace be to you. Okay? And then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger. See my hands. Reach here your hand and put it into my side. Don't be unbelieving, but believing. Now Jesus knew what he had said. But he wasn't with the group when Thomas said it. But he knew exactly what he'd said. Is Jesus God and man at the same time? Yeah. So he knew exactly what Thomas said. So he made this visit primarily for one purpose. To get a sheep that had gone astray. That's Thomas. One who had just earlier in the year said, let's go die with him. One who had a, a strong faith or a bold faith or a misguided faith. But he at least said, I'm ready to die with him. Are you? But then he wasn't anymore. He was one of the sheep that scattered like without a shepherd whenever they arrested Jesus and took him to Golgotha. Now, <clears throat> Jesus almost repeats Thomas's words to him, and then he challenges and encourages him to believe. Be not unbelieving, but believe. So loudly proclaimed in this exchange is the issue of faith. Loudly proclaimed. Now, <clears throat> where we don't believe, we don't have peace. If, if we find things and words of truth that are found in the scripture, you don't believe Jesus, Jesus is coming back, you don't have peace in this world. You don't believe that he's going to raise you from the dead if you die before he comes back, you don't have peace in this world. You don't believe that you're good enough. It's all about faith because he is faithful even if we are faithless. You don't believe that, you don't have peace. So if you want peace in this world, which is some people's goal, that's all they want. They want if you, What would you like? I would just like to be happy and have peace is a common reply. But if you don't believe God, there's none to be found. You can mask it with drugs, alcohol, and all kinds of things. You can mask it, but you can't have peace apart from faith. And that's just the, the, the bottom line. Now, <clears throat> Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Now, probably hit his knees when he did. Just, just a guess. 
But while he was so adverse to Jesus being back, when he realized it, he made the adjustment. You know, that's what great believers do throughout history. They might be hard-headed and hard-headed and hard-headed and say no and no and no, but whenever they finally catch it, the adjustment is almost immediate. And that's what happened with Thomas. He was no longer a doubter. From that moment on, Thomas was unswayed in the mission. And as you might remember, he went to India. Because when they finally figured out they were supposed to leave, <laughs> the Lord said, leave. You know, go into all the nations, make disciples of every nation. That means don't stay in Jerusalem. So what did they do? They stayed in Jerusalem, just like the Jews had done for centuries. Okay, so it took a push to get them out of there. Once they got them out of there, we know what happened to Thomas. It's pretty well documented. He landed on the west coast of India, near the south, near a place called Cochin. And from there, he walked across the subcontinent of India all the way to the east coast to a place that we know as Chennai. Now, it used to be Madras, where we got the Madras shirts we had in high school that we loved them because they looked good, and then they we washed them and they bled and all that other stuff. It's where they came from. And he walked across it speaking in different languages that he'd not learned to about 200 dialects to get from the west coast to the east coast and he carried the gospel all the way across southern India his fruit remains even to today there is the church of St. Thomas in southern India that started with the apostle that is there now they've got a little bit high church and maybe a little bit wacky but his fruit did did remain um, now, <clears throat> my Lord and my God. So he recognized Jesus as God. Huh. He's a good friend. He's a good man. Did he fully embrace what Jesus had said in John 8 before Abraham came into existence? I am. Had he fully embraced that yet? Here he did. He embraced what Jesus had, had told him. And notice that lives can be changed in an instant. It doesn't take a lot. Lives can be changed in an instant. So we shouldn't give up on anybody. Some of the most hard-headed people we know. If I mention who's the most hard-headed person you know in your life, you're going to have an instant mental picture that comes into play. And sometimes they're close friends, they're family, uh, they're, they're people that we love. But they're as hard-headed as a pole. And, but can they be changed? Yes. Don't give up. Don't give up. Pray. Pray for wisdom. How do we know what to say? The one thing I found out about praying for wisdom, you usually don't get it till you really need it. Because I pray for wisdom. and Okay, Lord, give me point one, point two, point three. I want to write it all out. And usually... It's, no, I'm not going to tell you right now. You're going to have to walk by faith in the process. And then when the time is right, you're going to have the wisdom to know 
what the Lord wants us to do. Because some things got more than one option, clearly. Which is the best and which is the wisest. And if we pray, it says, he, for wisdom he gives us to all men generously and without reproach. So, <clears throat> lives can be changed in an instant. And Jesus said to him, because you've seen me, have you believed? Perfect active indicative of pastuo. Normally you would expect an aorist, which is the point of time tense. Have you believed at this point of time because you have seen me? But now he uses the perfect. Have you believed with the faith that is going to change your life and go on forever? Now, <clears throat> blessed, makarios, same word used in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Same word used there. You're happy. It's a word means happiness. Are they who did not see and yet believed? And that's where all of us are. That's where all of us are. Because the faith of these 12 is what went out and literally changed the world. That's what happened. Now, Jesus had taught before that if you don't believe his words, at least believe his works. John chapter 10. Here's the issue. And Thomas was a witness to all this. John 10, 37. He says, if I... Do not do the works of my Father. Don't believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me as a person, believe the works. So that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Okay? I'm a guy that we've been out on the road together. You've heard me snore, all these other things. You know, and so... You, you, have, you have seen me. It's not about me. What have I done? Jesus has done things only God can do. Did you see him? Is what the, what the challenge is. And he asked Thomas, have you finally seen enough? Thomas, you have this faith now? Because you've seen me. Have you finally seen enough? <clears throat> And many of us are just like Thomas. We keep wanting another sign. What have you done for me lately, Lord? I know you've answered some prayers for me over the course of my X number of years that I have lived on this life. But what have you done for me lately? How many signs do we need? Constantly seeking another sign is a compromise with evil. Hmm. Matthew 12:38 Some of the scribes and the Pharisees said to him, "Teacher, we want to see a sign from you." And he answered and said to them, "An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign." He was real politically correct, wasn't he? He says, "Sure, bring me somebody I can heal right now." He said, "This is what your problem is. An evil and adulterous generation Craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Hmm. All they wanted was a sign. Well, here's a big one coming up. The sign of the prophet Jonah is resurrection from the dead. Now, <clears throat> Jesus pronounces a blessing for all who believe him without seeing him 
like Thomas did. That's all of us. We are blessed. We can be happy. And you know, these things are written, do you believe in the name of the Son of God that you might know you have eternal life? 1 John 5.13 What a beautiful passage that is. Because that's about faith. Do you believe that Jesus is powerful enough to save you from sin and death? You know, if you have that comfort in your soul, why should death scare us? It shouldn't. And you know who has the power of, of the fear of death? And that's the devil. So when the fear of death is gone, you disarm that, that, that old devil is what you do. Complete faith changes lives. You know, sometimes we grow up and we hear things and we hear things. And I grew up in a church. I went to church I didn't want to go to. But mom always made us go. We didn't, my brother and I didn't want to go to church. We went to church anyway. And we heard these things and we heard these things. And we were believers early on, but it wasn't a high priority in our life. And the, the, the gospel that was given had a kind of a mixture of, uh, this and that and you had to walk down the aisle you had to do all kinds of stuff in order to be saved okay and <clears throat> it was um, it's kind of wondering well it was more of a, of a gospel of works and you're wondering am I ever good enough to get into heaven and then you didn't want to be you didn't want Jesus to come back and you be involved in a sin like going to a pool hall <laughs> or a theater I mean that kind of dates me. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Uh, and so you didn't want to be caught there because you wouldn't get to go. You'd be found unworthy and all that other stuff. And then when I finally heard the gospel clearly, that it was salvation was by grace, through faith, not of works, lest any should boast. Then after we're saved, we work. That pleases him. But we don't work to get saved. And I finally heard that, and I remember going... Well, Father, uh, I don't know that I've ever told you I believed in your son. Done all this other stuff. Except made the profession of faith that really mattered. And that, as I see, was a complete faith concerning the issue of salvation. Because the pastor there said, If you don't have Christ in your life, you're without hope. Oh, that's politically incorrect isn't it you are lost you're going to spend eternity forevermore away from the almighty God that just kind of a hellfire and brimstone thing wasn't it but anyway it rattled me enough and I finally went okay I see the difference was that when I really became a believer or when I came to really know about the gospel well, things changed in my life shortly after that. And within the next few years, instead of headed down the path I was to destruction and ruination, I'm in seminary. And so you guys have to put up with that. <laughs> so complete faith changes lives. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book the gospel of John now 
all of Jesus' miracles were signs. That's what the scripture says. In John chapter 4, early on in his ministry, he came again to Cana of Galilee where he'd made the water wine. By the way, it really was wine. It wasn't grape juice. Okay, Really turned it into wine. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and he was imploring him to come down and heal his son. For he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. The royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go. Your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus had spoken to him and he started off. As he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. This is healing by long distance. Jesus didn't have to be there. He didn't have to touch them. He didn't have to spit and put it in their eyes so they could see. He didn't have to be there. He could do it long distance. So the father knew it was the hour that Jesus had said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. This is again a second sign. The first miracle, changing the water into wine, called a sign. This is the second sign, healing the official son that Jesus performed when he come out of Judea into Galilee. John records six miracles of Jesus. And there's a whole lot of them recorded in the other gospel. But John records six miracles. Turning the water into wine was the first one. Healing the nobleman's son. That's the one we just saw in John 4. The pool at Bethesda. This was a superstitious type of thing. They believed that occasionally the Holy Spirit stirred up the water. First one in the water could get healed. And it was kind of a, a, a you can imagine, it would be a race to the pool. The water stirs up. Everybody's jumping in and diving in, trying to be the first one to get in there and be healed. Well, Jesus shows up at this place, and this guy has been laying there for 38 years. And and Jesus says, you want to be healed? And he said, well, yes, I'd like to, but people jump over me. People won't help me in. Everybody else, whine, 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 whine. And Jesus said, do you want to be healed? <laughs> okay. You don't need to jump in the water at all. Do you want to be healed? And so he healed him. And we find out later it was on the Sabbath and Jesus got a lot of trouble for healing a guy on the Sabbath. But anyway, he thoroughly, completely healed him. And everybody had been watching him at the pool for 38 years. Magic trick? Don't think so. The stuff he did is stuff only God can do. Then he fed the 5,000. Uh, that was that was quite a deal. Feeding the 5,000, that was... Uh, <sighs> Philip, feed these people, is what he said. Oh, sir, we can't do that. It'd take 200 denarii. I think Philip was the bean counter. 
I think he and Matthew together would be would be the the two CPAs that are keeping track of everything. Okay, Judas kept the money box. Okay, but these other guys because they said it'd take 200 denarii to feed these people once, one meal. Now see, they knew how many people were there. <laughs> they'd already counted, they'd already calculated, and they already knew how much it cost. Well, one that's 200 denarii is half a year's wages. A denarii a day was the basic going wage for the people in, in Galilee. So 200 denarii, they already knew. And Jesus said, well, Philip, feed these people. Lord, we just don't have, well, what do you have? And we know the story of the five loaves and the two fishes. One of the miracles that's recorded in all four Gospels. Beautiful picture of what happens. Later that night, Jesus walks on the water, by the way. That's recorded in another gospel. But feeding the 5,000. And when they got done, they had 12 baskets of food left out of five loaves and two fishes. Do you think one basket for each disciple may have been enough to build their faith? Because that's what they had left. And then John chapter 9. Healing the man born blind. That's another miracle that can't possibly be a magic trick unless you have a shill. You have someone that claims to be that, but this is a man born blind that everybody knew. Had he been faking it for 20, 30, 40 years? Or was he really born blind? And Jesus just asked the question, and then, oh yeah. And guess what? First person he got to see was Jesus when he opened his eyes. And then John 11 is raising Lazarus from the dead. I love that line. Lord, he's been dead three days. Behold, he stinketh. Yeah, that's a, that's a great line, isn't it? And he says, roll the stone away. The principle there is sometimes he asks us to do stinky things. <laughs> to bring about <laughs> what our desires are. Because that was definitely Mary and Martha's desire that he raised, that Lazarus not die. But he said, Mary, Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life. Do you believe in the resurrection? Oh yeah, one of these days, the end of the age, she starts spouting off theology dispensational theology at that <laughs> at the end of the age yeah yeah they'll be back but no it's not about a theological point it's about the fact I am it and so he raised him from the dead some days he healed people all day long and these are all signs to go along with it Matthew 4 Jesus was going through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And the news about him spread through all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And large crowds followed him from Galilee into the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Decapolis was kind of a warring area between the Jews and the, and the, the Gentiles. 
Now, Thomas and the disciples saw almost all the miracles. Why would they ever doubt his words? And we say, have we seen the Lord do anything? You and I have seen him over the course of time work in the lives of people in amazing ways. We have seen people that he has healed, that he has, he has preserved from danger. We have seen all kinds of things. And are we still like Thomas going, what else are you going to do for me? Now, verse 31. These have been written. What to these? About the miracles and the things, the stuff. And we're in the context of doubting Thomas. That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. The anointed one. The Messiah. The Son of God. And that believing you may have life in his name. So faith in Jesus Christ is the reason the Gospel of John was written. Why is it put together? John wrote it in a more Greek-minded uh, worldview. Uh, Jews and Greeks just do things differently. Not that they're wrong. It's just that they do things differently. Normally the Greeks, where most of us come from, we give a whole list of evidence and then we give a bottom line. Jews normally give the bottom line and then the reasons why. It's not that either one is wrong, it's just a different way of doing things. And so John, the gospel probably put together about 85 AD is what a lot of people think. Uh, one of the, the last books to be written along with the epistles before the book of Revelation. And he says, what I want you to get out of what this, this scroll has to say I want you to believe. So that believing, you have life in his name. Faith in Jesus Christ is the key to life. And notice the principle that the written word is designed to take us to the living word. That, that is so critically important. This book has been written so that we may end up in relationship with the living word. Now, it's all about faith in Jesus, Messiah. Faith in Christ is what overcomes the world. We haven't done this song in a long time, but a lot of us remember it probably from our childhood days. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Well, where did that come from? First John chapter 5, first five verses. And if you, if you want to follow along with these, these verses... Uh, just you can see them there and turn to. I used to say turn to in your Bibles too, and now it's flip your cell phone to whatever program that you've got. But I'm not going to get legalistic about it. <laughs> Find the verse. First <laughs> John five verse one. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Messiah. Now if you read the word Christ as Messiah. I think you really got it. Because it means anointed one. It is not his last name. Like some people take it. He is the Messiah. Is born of God. Is that a dogmatic statement? Whoever believes that Jesus is the Messiah. Is born of God. And whoever loves the Father. 
loves the child born of him. If you really love God Almighty, you love his only begotten son, which John wrote about in, in John 3. For by this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and observe his commandments. That's not the 613 in the Mosaic Law. Okay? Because what did, he, what did he do? He only gave about 12 things that are mentioned in the New Testament and says the law of. The law of. Includes the law of sin and death. Uh, bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. That's what that new book is about on the back table. So if we're going to be obedient to him and share a relationship to him by being obedient, we need to be willing to bear one another's burdens as they are presented to us. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Who's born of God? The one that believes that Jesus is the Messiah. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. And that's where that song came from. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Who is the one who overcomes the world? <laughs> I like the way John does it. And he learned it from Jesus. Sometimes he says the same thing three different times. Just so we'll get it. But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of the God. You know, overcome the world, that's where it starts. Now those who do not believe in Jesus, Messiah, are already judged. Okay, look at what the book says. John 3.16 We know that verse. They found out in Vietnam and the prisoners of war that were there because they learned tap codes and they learned how to share with one another by tapping on the walls and one of the first things that was asked is what Bible verses do you know and they would share those Bible verses with, with one another and the most commonly known verse was John 3.16 for God so loves the world that he gave his only begotten son whoever believes in him now I like the whoever because we're all whoever's and that means that whoever is a whoever is a whoever. <laughs> and so whoever believes in him shall not perish. That's a statement as direct as you can make it. But have this present active indicative eternal life. It's a possession. When you believe you have a possession called eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world. That wasn't the first advent. That's second advent. Read Isaiah 61.1. First advent, he didn't send him into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. The son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for the many. He who believes in him is not judged. But he who does not believe has been judged already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is telling us a lot about the essence of God. Because in his sovereignty, which is his kingship, he made laws. 
And he said, if you obey the law, certain things will happen. If you disobey, certain things will happen. If you obey, this is a law that you believe in his son in order to be saved. And if you don't believe in his son, you stand in the judgment of rejecting his son for all of eternity. Until the moment in time you say, I'm going to believe. And then you move out of judgment into life. Now that's the picture we're painting. One who does not believe in Jesus Christ will die in his sins. From John chapter 8, verse 23 and 24. He was saying to them, You are from below. I am from above. You're of this world. I'm not of this world. I, I have read things that, that, that are worse than what you hear on the TV. And people saying that Jesus did not reveal that he was God in the flesh. Now, and my usual comeback is once you read the book and see what it says. Okay? Because here's one of the places that it, that it says, yeah, who's he talking to? Pharisees. Who are they challenging him on? Who are you? Aren't you just a carpenter's kid from Nazareth? I mean, they're, they're right in his face. And he said, therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins unless you believe that I am he. <laughs> I, I am he kind of kind of softens it, if you will. Unless you believe that I'm Jehovah, that's what he's saying. Yahweh, I am who I am. He uses ego I me, I myself am. That's the Greek equivalent of Yahweh. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. The I am sees the Redeemer. The I am is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He is the I am. And then in John 8:54, that's this later on in this chapter, he says, "If I glorify myself, my glory is not of the Father. Self-glory." was probably one of the biggest tests that Jesus faced. Because self-glory would have been a sin. He said, if I glorify myself, but it's the Father who glorifies me, so I'm just going to do what he says to do. And I'm not going to gear my life toward my own glory. But I'm going to gear my life toward the Father's words. And the glory is going to come. So he, he fully understood it in his humanity. That I am He. John 8.54 I glorify myself. My glory is not of the Father. But He said before Abraham was born. I am. Ego I me. Yeah. He told them who He was. In really no uncertain terms. And more than once they picked up stones to stone him because he declared himself to be the son of man that they all knew from the book of Daniel was a title for the Messiah. They knew it. One must believe in the relationship between the father and the son. In John chapter 10, if we want to have a, a, our relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit grow, there's some things that we need to believe. He says, if I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so you may know and understand the Father's in me and I in the Father. 
Resurrection and life are received through faith. John chapter 11. How did I get this out of sequence? There it is. Resurrection and life are received through faith. From John 11, 25, 26. When he's speaking to Mary and Martha, and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? <laughs> I, I love this. I love this. If you, are, if you believe in him, you're never going to die. But even if you do die, you're going to live. How much theology is buried in that simple statement? <laughs> oh, if you believe in me, you'll never die. Because you're going to be born again spiritually. And that new spiritual life is never going to die. And that new, that new life is going to become a new creation. And you're going to cast off this old outer covering one of these days. This outer tent. And you are going to become a new creation in Christ Jesus. In a resurrection body like his. Because we can see him as he is. He said that's what I am. So yeah even if you die physically. You're never going to die spiritually again. That's one of the passages I believe is part of the proof of the security of the believer. Once you become a believer in Jesus Christ, then you are forever there. I was teaching pastors in India one time and they had a bunch of questions and our foundations books talk about the security of the believer. And... Some of the questions is, okay, we we believe you can lose your salvation. Tell us why that you don't believe that. And I said, does anybody get a Bible? And of course, they all had Bibles. I said, well, somebody read the verse. And they all started to read the verse <laughs> at one time. I said, read John 3.16 to me. And they read it. And it says, when you put your faith in him, you have eternal life. And they went... I said, when does eternal end? That's the only question. And their eyes got big. It's like for the first time they thought, because most of them are of a background that you could lose your salvation for just thinking wrong. Okay? There was no comfort. There was no peace. There was no security that went with that. And they, they just went, now I see. Now I see. That's, that's a blessing. The written word cannot impart eternal life. Because only Jesus, the living word, has the power. John 5, we're still... See how much is in John about this? About faith? I mean, this is written, this book, that gospel, is so you can have faith in Jesus Christ. He is from God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word is with God. That's how it opens up. It goes through his life. It goes through his ministry, his visit with Nicodemus, his raising of people from the dead, feeding the 5,000. It goes through all that, gives a, gives a larger description of the trials and the cross than any other gospel. And he says, this is written so you can have eternal life. You will have enough information to have an objective faith that says he's the only way, just like it says. John 5, 39. 
this this verse <coughs> had significant meaning to me after getting out of seminary because it was more about the theology. After It's one of the things that seminaries need to watch out for because they can get people so involved in studying the theology and all the arguments and everything else, they lose their relationship with the Lord or don't grow it. And so you end up with a knowledge of the written word, but you still are lacking in your relationship with the living word. And he says in John 5.39, one of those verses that just ate on me for years, because he says, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. That written book is not what gives you eternal life. It's it's what reveals who gives you eternal life. And you missed that point. You missed a big part of the Christian life. And he says, <clears throat> he says, it is these, the written word, that testify about me. And you're unwilling to come to me so that you can have life. I don't receive glory from men, but I know you. You don't have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name. You didn't receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that's from the one and only God? I mean, Jesus is confrontational here, is he not? You want glory from one another, but not from the Almighty. Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father, because the one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you set your hope. The written word. All they had was the Old Testament back then. And they set their hope in Moses that they could fulfill all of those 613 commandments totally and completely. And they kind of thought, well, if I can ever get them all right, then I'll be saved. One disqualifies you. One failure. If you believed Moses, you'd believe me because he wrote about me, the prophet who is to come, likened to Moses. He wrote about him multiple times. If you don't believe his writings, how will you believe my words? He's saying if you really understood the Mosaic law, you'd see me. You need a Messiah. Because there's no way you can keep the law. You keep trying to save yourself. And the only thing you've got to lay down is trying to save yourself. You need to find a Savior. That's why Christianity is so different from any religion on planet Earth. It is so different. Because we're the only ones that say you can't save yourself. Buddhism believes you can. Hinduism believes you can. They believe that, that you can evolve through the, the karma stuff and you can get so good you can become your own God. Christianity says give it up. Not going to happen. You need to find a savior. And I want one that's conquered sin and death. Faith overcomes fear. John 14 let not your heart be troubled. Here's his disciples. He's just washed their feet. He's telling them that he's going to die. They're still not buying into it. And he says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. But believe also in me. And this faith that we have is our witness to the world. 
from John 17, I do not ask on behalf of these alone. He's talking to the Lord. This is the high priestly prayer. Either on the way to Gethsemane or in Gethsemane, and they overheard him. However it happened, doesn't matter. What, happened, what matters is what he said. And he's praying for his disciples. He said, I'm not asking on behalf of these alone, but for also those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you, Father, sent me, the Son. We are called to be his witnesses. Called to be his witnesses. And how's that done? Our faith. That's the best way to be a witness. Now, <clears throat> this is uh, faith in Jesus Christ. It's so simple. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your goodness. And Father, if there's anybody who has come today or who is listening to this message and they have not yet put their faith and trust in our Lord Jesus Christ for their eternal salvation, Father, we pray the Holy Spirit would make it clear they are indeed without hope and they are without eternal life. And Father, I pray the Holy Spirit would, would help them to understand the gravity and importance of this. Father, we pray that if they have come and not yet accepted him, we pray that Today would be the day, as Paul said, today is the day of your salvation. There's no need to wait another day. It's time to be reborn. It's time to know that you have eternal life. And it's time to set out on a new course of this life. One that is seeking to honor and please you, Father, in all that we think and say and do. May this indeed be the case. And we will give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.